0: Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Good morning, church. Morning to our guests, friends. Thank you for being with us. I'm going to tell you a little story about a couple of brothers. One was about three and a half, four years older than the other one, older and a younger brother. And uh, the older brother helped lead the younger brother to Christ. And um, interesting relationship. They come to Christ and they start arguing Bible stuff right away. And two issues really stuck out that they would go back and forth, whether it was emails. This may have been before the texting era, phone calls, mostly emails. And it was a battle about the position that a Christian should take on two major issues, personal lifestyle issues, alcohol and homeschooling. The older brother was a homeschooling guy with family. The younger brother was like, homeschooling sounds great, glad it's working for you, perhaps there are other alternatives. And that got pretty intense, pretty fierce. And then you had the older brother, chronologically, who took the tact that Christians should be abstinent, teetotalers, when it comes to alcohol. And the younger brother said, now nah, I understand the argument, particularly where you came from in terms of your prior life before Christ, but I don't think the Bible teaches abstinence per se. There's warnings and risks and dangers, but there's no There's no abolition of social drinking per se, and they went back and forth about that, and it got really intense and you know it really strained the relationship for a while and what's interesting is that the is the way the roles can switch because the younger brother wound up homeschooling his family and wound up becoming generally basically an abstinent person in terms of alcohol and um that's where we're at as we talk about a stronger. And weaker brother today, and the issue of Christian liberty, um, and I—I'm very intimate with this issue because I was one of those two brothers. I won't tell you which one. And guess what? You're one of those brothers too, or sister. And you've been both, and you may be both at the same time right now—stronger and weaker. This issue is massive. We may step on toes today, and I'm just really, I pray for your help, that as John Mark prayed, I get out of the way, and the Holy Spirit does what he has to do, because disunity, division in the church, often happens because of what we're going to talk about today. How are conflicts handled between believers? It's It's still a challenge. I've been walking with the Lord for nearly 28 years, so I've seen this personally, and as a pastor, I see it and experience it all the time. You and I are living in this every single day because as you begin to talk about things in life and theology, differences of opinion that you have with your brothers and sisters are going to pop up invariably. It's inescapable. You're going to start to talk about what you watch, what you listen to, what you eat, what you drink, your views on children, family, politics, etc., etc., etc. So how do we live with each other in the church with all these differences? And you might say, "Oh, there's a solution." It's in the Bible, it's in the text, Christian liberty. We all have that, right? Paul's been teaching us Christian liberty in a sense in the first 11 chapters of Romans, he does it in the book of Galatians. We're free from the law. We're free From rules and regulations, really? Right? I mean, Paul wrote in the beginning of Galatians 2, verse 16, I believe it is. Paul said, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Free, free at last. Do what you want. If it feels good, do it. Really? No. That's antinomianism. Big word that simply means anti-law. Moral law. That's not it. Because from the same passage I just read you in Galatians 2, it says, verse 19, through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, so no Christian liberty is not license to sin. It's not license for you to do whatever your flesh feels like. Isn't that same letter to the Galatians Paul wrote in chapter five and verse thirteen? He said, "You were called to freedom, brothers." Oh, sounds good, liberty. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Oh, qualifier there. No one can ever be completely free. Let me just say that right now. You hear Christian liberty. No one is completely free, even believers, simply because even though we have a new nature, like Paul, we struggle in a tug of war with the flesh. Romans 7. You're still dealing with flesh until the Lord comes back. What it means, Christian liberty, is... So we get this on the table. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you, you can say no to sin. You're now a slave to Jesus and righteousness, Romans 6. You are free. You are now free with a new born-again heart, that's the qualifier, to live for Christ and do what you ought to do. You're now free to do what you ought to do, which now should be what you want to do. That's freedom. That is true Christian liberty. But you might say, Pastor, now, that sounds good, that's true, but you're not helping me. You're not telling me what to do when I decide to not participate in Halloween and my brothers and sisters in Christ do. They're into it. They're so confused. They had skeletons and tombstones in their yard. What do I do with these people that I'm supposed to love? Thank God the Lord gave us Paul to write so much of his word in the New Testament and this text to have that we have to help us struggle through this to wrestle with this this is a whole section of scripture this is a unit of thought that begins in the first verse of chapter 14 goes all the way through the middle of 15 and it deals with the issue of criticism between believers in a church the apostle paul's moving from macro issues to micro because in the macro he was talking about chapters 12 to 16 there's categories about love Forgiveness, serving one another with your gifts, submission, being awake. Remember, get ready for the Lord's second coming last time. But now he's narrowed it to this definitive local church issue on relationships. Talking about how we deal with each other when we disagree with each other because we hold to different convictions on issues. The problem is if we don't get this right... The idea of understanding and living with one another in Christian liberty won't work. We're going to be divided, and it can be destructive. And you've probably seen it. This was a huge issue back then in the church, and it is today, which is why there's so much Scripture dedicated to this issue, Christian liberty between the strong and weak. In fact, there's more on this topic in this letter than what he wrote about on church and state issues, on love even though the text is grounded in love. Because Paul experienced this in feuds in the church in Corinth, Galatia, with a group called the Judaizers, really legalistic people, Colossae. And as we're going to see here, he's warning and teaching a church at Rome he hasn't even been to yet. He's telling them, in essence, been there, done that. I just got out of those two churches. I hear some of you are involved in this kind of thing. So let me set you straight. What happened was in Rome, the believers were divided over special diets, special days to observe in the passage. Some people were thought of as the liberals here, others were the legalists. Some members thought it was a sin to eat meat, so they ate only vegetables or herbs. Others thought it was a sin not to observe the Jewish high holy days. And if you know if each Christian had just kept his conviction to him or herself there wouldn't have been a problem. Problem was they started to criticize and judge one another. So Paul confronts the church with these two great realities we always have to have in the church. There's this tension, unity and diversity. One cannot coexist without the other in the local body of Christ. This is not a homogeneous church. Everybody looks, thinks, and talks the same. God's not about that. Let me tell you, the Lord loves diversity as long as it's unified. He could have made his church vanilla. No, he made his church like Baskin-Robbins, 64 flavors. At least. You can just look around you and see the diversity in the room, right? So Paul gives us two rules on how to make this happen. Christian liberty and unity, you ready? Grace rules in the first three verses and God rules in verse four. Pray with me. Lord, your word says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That is your will and your word, according to the psalmist. And just as our Lord Jesus prayed to you in his high priestly prayer that we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in Christ and Christ in you, we, the church in this room and listening beyond those listening, they'd also be with you in the Godhead so that the world may believe that you have sent us. Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can do today on this very important matter and bring the truest, most relevant, practical application to bear on the listeners that only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace has got to rule. That's the first three verses. Look at the passage, the very first verse of the chapter. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions, before we get into the nitty gritty of this conflict here, how we deal with it, we gotta define who is who. Who is the weak? The weak in faith. It's not the weak of the faith. Important distinction. He's talking to believers here. What you had was believers in the church, every church, who have a practical day to day sanctifying faith that is a little weak either in general or in certain issues or certain areas. And like you would think, the Greek word, like English, that defines weak is lacking power, it's lacking strength. But the Greek gives us another word that's a good one to focus on in this context. It's a poor faith, meaning it's lacking something. And what you're going to see is the weak are in poverty over knowledge, lacking knowledge. The weak has doubts, lacks knowledge on what to do in certain areas of life. They're not as decisive as other people. Turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. During the study of this chapter and the weeks ahead, we're going to spend a lot of parallel time in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 because Paul was having, like I said, the same issues there. And the parallel is very close. Great principles, great truth here. Listen carefully. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, Paul says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, little g, many lords, little l. So Paul's just saying, there's idols, there's gods, these little gods all over the place. There are nothing They don't exist. They mean nothing, right? Verse 6, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Here's the key, verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. Knowledge of what? Of all these idols that are false and mean nothing. But some, here it is, through former association with idols, eat food is really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. The weak in that analogy can eat food offered to idols. Because Paul's saying nothing. Eating food offered to idols means nothing. You know why they would do it? Believers knew that idols meant nothing, and you'd get a great price on the food offered to idols at the butcher shop in the back of the temple. So like, why not? save a book, Omaha Steakhouse right here, (laughs) right? But the weaker brother, I feel it. They're like, do you know that was offered to an idol? An idol that was worshiped? That's a sin. You see the tension? You see where this is going? The weak have a conscience that is very sensitive. They are, to use the old word, sensitive scrupulous they feel obligated to obey self-imposed rules on themselves and sometimes others concerning what to eat and what to drink or days to worship now some gentiles pagans could have been the weaker brother here in this situation because like i just mentioned any kind of idolatry is a no-no for them any kind of association with it. So some of them were living what's called ascetic lifestyles. They were like monks. Isolation. And you and I have known people like that, right? Not monks per se, but, you know, we know people that have come out of a particularly sinful lifestyle, maybe having to do with some addictions, those works of darkness we saw last time in wrapping up chapter 13. Look at the last verse of chapter 13 where the lord said where the word said put on the lord jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires so that's what the weaker brothers doing right and they're so serious about it they don't even want to get near anything that smells or smacks of their former sinful lifestyle and i get it we're not to come down on the weaker brother I think of the character that Kirk Cameron played in the movie Fireproof. He had a pornography issue. He comes to Christ. What did he do with the computer? He smashed it. He took it out of the house, and he says, I'm not having a computer here. That was his conviction of conscience. Some other person might go, really, dude? No internet? No computer? Kirk Cameron, if he wanted to lord that over everybody else, would have been here the weaker brother. Interestingly enough, in terms of how this plays out, Paul warned Timothy, there were going to be people like this that were going to put artificial rules on people. 1 Timothy 2, 2 and 3. The insincerity of liars he's talking about, whose consciences are seared, burned, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Actually, was it? Verses chapter 4, not chapter 2. I got that wrong. But the words are right. That says they are to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know and know the truth. People that know the truth don't have to worry about that. So sometimes the weak make up rules where there are none biblically. I've seen that in churches. Another example, there was a woman who had a sexually promiscuous past. She used to dress in very revealing ways. She repented. She came out of that follower in Christ. So what happens sometimes is people can move from one extreme in their life to another on the pendulum swing, all the way from the left, all the way to the right, where this particular woman now dresses fairly Amish. I get it. And furthermore, the issue is she thinks then most women should. After all, she is doing that. Might have a guy who so closely identifies with his old sex, drugs, and rock and roll... Lifestyle as an unbeliever, upon being saved, he hates the idea of even hearing in the background secular music, rock and roll. For him, it's going to be hymns only in the church and out of the church. And maybe it should be for a bunch of people. And he'll let you know that. The examples are numerous. And for these two people, that's their conviction. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself but they might be the weaker brother or sister in those cases, as you're going to see in a moment, by how they treat everybody else, the other brother, the other sister, which is the stronger brother. So we talked about the weaker, who is strong. The weaker, again, scrupulous, super-sensitive conscience. Every church, there are weak and strong believers. Let me make this clear. Paul does not give a preference to the weaker or the stronger. They're equal, They're believers both in the eyes of God, equal at the cross, total equality. But the strong, here's the difference. They understand spiritual truth and they practice it decisively on some issues where the weak have not yet grown into that level of maturity and liberty on a certain issue at a certain time. The strong eat, drink, live, observe their days, They do a number of things with a clear conscience. No second thoughts. The strong knows generally here and is exercising freedom in Christ. That's Christian liberty. But again, I say, with liberty comes responsibility. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. Excellent verse for you to jot down, by the way. And we'll develop this as we go further in this section. All things are lawful, Paul said, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up or edify. That's a massive statement. Because Paul is saying things that are not outlawed explicitly in the Bible, meaning all things are lawful, I'm good to do. That doesn't mean I should, because they may not be Helpful in building me up and maturing in the faith. So you see, it's not this absolute Christian freedom. I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever. Whatever I want. No. Paul's saying you may, terms of the law, but is that what's good for you? What kind of things are we talking about? Some things, what are they quarreling about? The Greek word that really has the idea of passing judgment on somebody. Arguing. Opinions. Opinions literally are things that are doubtful, disputable, and questionable. Think of doctrines. Issues where one person thinks they're right, the other person wrong. It refers to a practice and an activity that the Bible does not forbid, but that some Christians feel uncomfortable doing. Think of driving in a car. This is the best analogy I could come to. You come to an intersection, and the light is yellow. I used to think yellow meant proceed with caution. That's not really what it means, as I found out, much to my chagrin. But some people drive that way with the yellow about to come red when it comes to decision-making. Yellow really means prepare to stop, right? I found that out later but they're not sure what to do. So they live on yellow. Do I hit the brakes or do I go through the intersection? That's a person who is scrupulous and may be weaker in the faith on an issue. I don't know. I don't know if I should do this or not. Yeah. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. But light for the stronger brother may be green for us. Totally, right? Green means go. You do it. Weaker brother, sees yellow about to turn red. It goes to red. Red says, no, abstain. Do not do it. Now, again, this is not confusing things, doctrines, issues that we know are wrong because the Bible clearly condemns them. We would call these gospel issues. The Ten Commandments. These are inarguable, should be, issues black and white issues found in clear explicit commands in scripture that are for all of God's people in all times and all places but when it comes to areas not so clearly defined in scripture opinions Paul calls them those are what we might call the gray instead of black and white you're going to find you're going to need other kind really guidance to make them black and white for you So you can make a decision. This is key. The guidance does not come easily and does not come quickly or equally for all believers. Remember the parable of the soils, Matthew 13? Jesus talked about it fell on the good soil. Those were disciples. Some yielded 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Everyone is on different steps on the sanctification discipleship ladder. So what you get and understand now with knowledge, maybe you didn't five years ago, or your brother and sister in Christ is not there. So there are some believers, they study the Bible, they read good, reliable books on ethics, theology, doctrine, these issues, and they come away with a real good, strong understanding and conviction of what to do. How do you apply it? In fact, I would say if you look at principles and patterns and practices in the Bible where you don't have direct precepts or commands, you can, you can apply them pretty well and really clear up a lot of gray. But other people, it's going to come slower. So we get a lot of guidance here on what to do in chapter 14 and 15. It's gonna be, this this section is going to be super helpful for you in understanding ethics, Christian ethics, morals. Some of you, it's going to take longer. Paul explains here how we can disagree on non-essentials, still maintain unity in the church. And, and now historically, let's look at what this looked like here. Look at verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, you have people with a strong conviction Skip down to verse 5, which we'll look at more in depth next time. One person esteems one day, now it's a day instead of food, one day like a holiday, think of, okay, or a feast day. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Circle, highlight that last sentence. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Or conscience, right? You know, people, I don't do Christmas, man. That tree is pagan. But they'll observe Halloween and Thanksgiving. Any other person will do Christmas. Thanksgiving, that's just some American holiday, and I don't know what they did to the Indians and all that. So I can't do that. You see how you can be vacillating in position, stronger to weaker. Any number of ways. But it is good when you have a doubt, you want, to be, you want to get to the point that you are fully convinced, literally, in the language, persuaded or assured about an issue so that you can choose whether it's right for you or not. You want confidence you're making the right decision. Skip down to verse 23 of this chapter, and you're going to see the consequence of not doing that. This is very, very strong verse, very helpful. But whoever has doubts, could be about anything that's not essential, is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You may be free to do something, and if you don't feel free to do it, you know what Paul's saying? Don't do it. Don't do it. Because if you do, you're violating your conscience. You're sinning against conscience. It may be right for you to do it, your neighbor's doing it as a Christian. If you got doubts, if you're at the yellow light and you're at the red light, leave it alone. Don't do it at that time. It's very powerful. I think it's very helpful. There's nothing wrong with conviction in and of itself. We need more people that know how to live with their convictions. The context, so we get this clear, the debate is not about meat and vegetables. It wasn't like a food quality argument, vegetarians versus carnivores has really nothing to do with it. The debate is over food that again would have been offered to idols perhaps and would be considered unclean by your weaker brother in Christ. So the problem is the weaker brother doesn't think or know that they are or even they don't want to be. I mean, who wants to go around in church going, by the way, I'm the weaker brother. Just want you to know that in case that was a question. They have this idea that Christians that follow stricter rules are actually more mature than their brothers. That's not necessarily the case. The Roman congregations, the weak Christians were clinging to the law, and they didn't really enjoy their freedom in Christ, as Paul laid it out. This is why I think the weaker brother here generally is the Jew. He's legalistic, leaning in this church at Rome and the other churches in the region, because Paul's telling us a context about special diet days, drinking wine. Pagan wouldn't worry about that. Disputable opinions that are being argued over are leading to problems on these issues. The Jewish context, okay? Now, you might know, by the way, wine was offered in pagan sacrifices to their false gods and idols. And a Jew had a tradition where they could drink wine. That wouldn't be the problem. The problem would be for a Jew is that it was offered to an idol. And here they are. They come into this church. They're now mixing with Gentiles in a congregation that were with brothers and sisters they have to think of now, a church family, and they were just worshiping false idols. These Jews were saved out of the old covenant law. They're now in New Testament, New Covenant grace. And so they're struggling. New converts out of Judaism, they have repented, but they're still living in a Judaistic culture. They got family and friends they are hanging around in the first century that are still in the legal system, sacrifices, temple, special days, feasts, kosher food, clothing, all these requirements. They haven't gotten away yet. And now they're being told, enter into the home of a Gentile as a Jew and take the Lord's Supper with them, share a meal. You could see how this would be a flammable issue at this time. Listen, the two great apostles, Peter and Paul, they're in the midst of this. One is stronger, one is weaker. They have an issue here. Peter tried. He's a disciple. Resurrected Lord appears to him in a vision. Remember Acts 10. Go to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Gentile, Roman centurion, and he's told, you're going to go there and you're going to eat a big, pagan, non-kosher meal. There's bacon everywhere. (laughs) It's like hyper-keto if there's such a thing. What's he going to do? And Cornelius gets the same vision. Peter's coming over. Wow. And Peter even tells him when he gets there, he tells that whole household, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of any other nation. It's the Mosaic law. But God has shown me now that I should not call any person common or unclean because a new, better covenant has come in the new age, church age of grace. Peter is now an example of trying to bring unity like what you read about in detail in Ephesians 2. So that should have solved the problem, right? That was the end of it? Nope. Because the church is exploding in growth. People are coming to Christ, Jews, Gentiles, all over the place. They're worshiping in churches together, and what happens? There's problems. Acts 15 says there's some believers that belong to the party of the Pharisees. They're kind of like the Judaizers in Galatians. And they rose up, and they said this, these Christian leaders, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. What? Isn't that what they got saved out of? This is a huge problem. This is where you get the first ever church ecumenical council. It was that big a deal. This is the Jerusalem council you've heard about. It's an idea where the leaders come together. How are we going to figure this out? How are we going to mix Gentile and Jewish believers in the same churches? And you know what? They could have taken an easy solution here, which we do too often today. Split the church, start another one, start a new denomination. Over here on this block, First Baptist Church of Kosher Food, Vegans and Days. Down the street, maybe pagan carnivore community church. They could have done that. We do it. Love and grace has to rule instead. So the council actually led and put forth some basic guidelines to help in this area because Christians were, weaker Christians were condemning, judging the stronger ones. The strong ones were despising, putting down, mocking the weak for their lack of faith. That's what's happening here. Longer, div- lots of division. And so if you've already figured out here, interestingly enough, on this issue, Peter's the weaker brother, overly scrupulous, and Paul's the stronger brother. Now, let's, that said, legalists, let's talk about legalism. In the strictest sense of the word, legalism means man-made laws for people to be right with God to be saved. It's like Roman Catholicism. It's like the Judaism of the Judaizers, which means you get saved by faith, plus this, 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 this. For Rome, it's plus, 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 seven sacraments, et cetera, et cetera. That's what Paul referred to as preaching another gospel. Right? The Galatian Judaizers were preaching justification by works still, even though they had been taught it's by faith and by grace. Here, but that wasn't the issue here. The issue here is a practical legalism, social legalism between weaker brothers and sisters, meaning you got real born-again believers in the faith who tended to make these opinions and preferences into rules, and by keeping them, they think they're getting more of God's grace on a sanctifying level, maybe. They're scoring holy brownie points with the Lord to use that colossians 2 language they thought they'd just stronger in the faith actually if we do not handle do not touch do not taste 50 years ago we had that issue in the church it sounded like this don't drink don't smoke don't dance don't play cards with girls who do how do we deal with this now today 2000 years later after paul's writing It's not food and days for us. So this is where we have to put on our thinking caps, get wise and get practical with applications. So here's Pastor Bernie's 10 Christian Liberty Issues in 2019. Here's my top 10 out of what are 10,000. Really, there's no way to even approach all the applications you have to make on this issue of Christian Liberty. These are my top 10 that I hear the most, read the most about. Number one, media and movies. What you saw what movie? No R-rated movies for Christians. What about The Passion of the Christ? Well, (laughs) you see how this can get? Number two, alcohol. Probably the biggest of them all. These are not in any particular order. Can Christians drink? Yes or no? Is it a yes or no answer? I just heard. (laughs) Thank you for affirming my point. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. That's right. It's yes and no. It's yes for some of you. It's no for some of you. This is why it is an opinion, a disputable, arguable item. Number three, smoking. Oh, smoking. Okay, it's legal, which makes it more problematic because most people think anything that's legal in society then is a good thing to do. Vaping. Well, I'll give you a heads up. Vaping is going to be outlawed pretty soon in the near future. About a half dozen states are already doing it because it's causing all kinds of physical harm. But yet, you would have Christians that would say, huh, it's not in the Bible. I looked in the back concordance. I don't see vaping. Marijuana. Right now, it's legal for medical purposes in Florida. I think any session now, any year now, it's going to be legal for recreational purposes, as it is in a growing number of states in the country. What do you do? Next one. It's a big one. Music, music. We were talking about this at a conference yesterday. I asked this question of a scholar. I said, is secular music okay for Christians? can a Christian listen to the Beatles? I pity the fool. I'm just throwing out the question. Dress codes. What's appropriate. What's not. In and out of church. (laughs) Tattoos, one of my favorites. I'll tell you. Personally, I can't stand them. I hate them. (laughs) here's the issue that's my personal opinion and conviction but how do I handle and deal with and relate to my brother or sister that has them because tattoos outside of one explicit passage in Leviticus is not addressed in the Bible are there principles and patterns and practices that could govern that? Yes but and be informative and help us with decisions on that? Yes. Not denying that. Because you can't live in gray forever. You gotta, you gotta take a stand. But it's disputable. Money. Can Christians be rich? Don't we have to give everything? Politics. That's massive. Can a Christian be a Democrat or a Republican? That's what I would say. <laughs> Thank you, George. Here's a hard one. Abortion. The English word is not mentioned in the Bible. Can you have pro-abortion rights and pro-life Christians coexisting in the same church? Don't be quick to answer. Sexuality: LGBTQ plus 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 plus. Is there coexistence on how to think about those issues? Church and state stuff. Speaking of church. That's the next one. Worship music styles. Oh no. The worship wars makes you want to cry. Amen. Multi-site campuses. Of the devil. <laughs> Listen, I have opinions about everything, about types of toast, but I'm not going to share them. Bible translations. Right, Jackie? If it's good enough for the king, it's good enough for you. The King James, KGV 1611 only. There are people that believe that translation was inspired by God directly. Doctrines, sponge, baptism, -baptism, paedo-baptism, credo-baptism. Can you baptize infants? Paedo-baptism. Is that biblical? Credo, creed, by confession only, believer's baptism. Is that the way to go? Communion. We have our Lutheran, some Anglican friends, Catholic friends. You're taking the body and the blood of Christ. Literally. No, you're not. Let's fight about it. Sovereign grace. The doctrines of grace. (laughs) We had these battles, but they were well done, weren't they? Weren't they, pastor? Right? Because... I'm the sovereign grace guy. God elects. God predestines. Well, where's choice in the will of man? He finally came and drank my Kool-Aid, and we're all good. But that's right. I was waiting for you. All right. Charismatic gifts. Oh, now he's done it. Spiritual gifts, signs, and wonders, are they for today or not? So in the midst of all of these issues, Paul's telling us you need to know how to maintain unity and diversity in the church. And when it comes to dealing with other people on these issues, these divisive issues, grace must rule because that's what God's given us. You can talk about, even debate some of these issues But none of these in the top 10 that I gave you, as well as hundreds of others, are dealt with by strict, black and white, easy to see commands per se. There are gray issues of conviction, of conscience, and wisdom. I will say again, very important, there are principles, patterns, and practices that you see in the Bible that can solve these dilemmas. Make them black and white for you. What was gray, you can make black and white, even if there isn't a command in Scripture. You just got to dig. Get good counsel. But no matter where you fall, don't judge the brother or sister. Like the stronger brother. Look at verse 3 of the text. Let not the one who eats, who's the stronger, despise the one who abstains, who does not. And let not the one who abstains Pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Don't despise stronger brother. Don't literally in the Greek ignore, look down on your weaker brother because they're weaker, and you know it on an issue. Weaker brother doesn't eat, abstains. Don't pronounce a sentence on your stronger brother. Legalist, legalist, Pharisee, Pharisee. That was the running joke that this Brother and older brother had between themselves. They would call each other. One was a libertarian; the other one called the other one a, a Pharisee. Those of who know me well, you may be getting the idea who was who. The idea is extend <laughs> loving grace to the brother you disagree with, not condemnation. Because Paul makes it clear, God has welcomed or received both the weak and the strong. Verse one. So why would we do anything different? A particular stand or an opinion or a conviction on a gray issue, this is important, is not a litmus test as to whether someone is Christian or not. I have to admit it, because I've walked this tightrope thing. I'm a pro-life guy, pro-life pastor. Praise God, we're a pro-life church. By conviction in our leadership, it's an official stance. But I'll just answer the question now. In case you have any doubts, are you required to welcome pro-abortion people who are professing believers in this congregation? You better believe it. You're going to like it? Probably not. You're going to welcome them? You better. Or God's going to have something to say to you. Because they're weaker, perhaps, on this issue right now. Haven't studied it out. Maybe new to Christ. I was sympathetic to the abortion thing when I first became a Christian. What? Is somebody going to condemn me? I've been in the faith for like five seconds. What are you going to do? The Trinity. Let's argue about the Trinity. When I became a Christian, the Trinity, I I don't even know what that means. The word's not in the Bible. I don't know how to work that one out. Blasphemer, heretic. You going to go there? No. No. Abortion, as important an issue it is, and it is, is not a gospel issue per se. What do I mean by this? Your position on certain issues or doctrines are not a litmus test, are not conditional to being saved. The only condition to being saved is confessing sin, turning to God, trusting in Jesus by faith alone. That's it. It's not trusting in Jesus by faith alone, plus being pro-life and pro-family. There are all kinds of people you're going to meet that are pro-life, pro-family, and they are on the way to hell. God's not happy about that. The Pharisees were pro-life. Pharisees, Judaizers, pro-family. It's fair to argue most of them right now are in the place of wailing and gnashing of teeth where the fire never dies. So what's more important? What's the hill to die on, as we say? So just don't consistently debate and argue with people on these issues, even with unbelievers. I want to show you a quick text that's so helpful on this. It's been to me over the years as a reminder. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. Paul's writing Timothy and says, to the, and tell this to the church. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Argument. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. By application, this is for all of us. But kind to everyone. Able to teach patiently, enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. You can correct. Have a conversation. Have a dialogue. The issue is how? With gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to what? A knowledge of the truth. It's a knowledge issue. On some issues, the stronger brother knows more than the weaker, so the stronger can more quickly make the decision, yes, and go through the green light. Weaker brothers become stronger brothers all the time. And there are stronger brothers who will be weaker on other issues. The idea is using tact. My simple definition of the word tact, when you communicate with someone, is think about what to say, how to say it, where to say it, and when to say it. So keep this in mind. You take a position on an issue, you think the other person's wrong, you may be right, but maybe they don't know it yet. So the Romans 12:13 idea of sanctification and love has to take over. Grace must rule. Don't harshly judge. Look at the first verse of, verse of chapter 15. We who are strong, if you're strong, you have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Then skip down to verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Your attitude towards people who are on the other side has to be the attitude that God has toward them, which is welcoming with love, grace, and mercy. Weak people in this room, you know who you are, some of you, on a certain issue. You have a feeling you are. Don't judge or condemn the strong. Don't call them Pharisees. Don't think they're Judaizers. Actually, don't don't condemn the strong because you think they're antinomian. Okay, they're libertarians, they're legalists. And stronger, brother, don't mock the weak in calling them Judaizers, or legalists. God has accepted both. Now, how does this affect judging? What we're talking about is don't do any sin sniffing, okay? Sin! I saw you! Don't do that. Do godly fruit inspection. If you don't do godly fruit inspection, you can't even share the gospel with somebody. Right? Right? This does not mean you cannot judge. The liberals today theologically say, Matthew 7, Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. What a misinterpreted text. What a butcher job that is on the scripture. That's not what it says at all. What it says is judge. When you do judge, judge rightly and non-hypocritically with the right heart for the right motives. It's saying Before you take that little sin, that little speck out of your brother's eye in the church, take out your log, right, which is a bigger mammoth piece. But it says before you judge, do that. So that implies you're judging. Just do it right. Do it right. So I want to clear that up. You couldn't do Christian discipleship. We couldn't preach, and you couldn't do Christian counseling unless you did a level of judging. Judging. Learn how to make judgments, not pronounce judgment on people. That's the difference. Listen, our Lord Jesus did this all the time. Did Jesus rebuke the apostles? Did he judge them? All over the place. Like, oh, you have little faith. Guess what? He just judged them. That's what judging is, biblically. You're this, you're that. You're doing this, you're doing that. If it's accurate, if it's biblical, if it's rooted in the Scripture, with clear commands, you're good on that. That's where you have to go so it's not your own opinion. It's not your preference that you're laying on somebody. You got to know, have a better idea through maturity, study in the word, prayer, what's gray and what's black and white. Paul does this as well. Don't make it a personal preference. If you've got clear biblical knowledge on an issue, again, I want to repeat this. Share it. This is discipleship. Talk about these issues. We're not saying don't talk about them. Look at verse 14 of chapter 14. We're almost done here. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He's writing this to the whole church. He's telling the church, this is what's up as a stronger brother, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Did you get that? That's the huge idea. And we'll get into stumbling block and how to handle relationships with people who think something is unclean. Just because they think it's unclean, they're not a bad guy. It's not bad to be a weaker brother. It means they may not have full knowledge or truth, discernment, understanding, and wisdom on a particular issue. And for them, because of their background, it may be the right thing to do. And therefore, we're not to hurt them because love. Let me say this will be a preview for what you hear the rest of this chapter. Love is greater than liberty. Every time. What I do for someone else is always more important than what I get to do. Does that make sense? Is that clear? I'd say critical principle to take away from this whole thing. There will be things that you will be allowed to do ethically that you will not do because of the fact that we've already established it will not build you up in the faith, and it will be a stumbling block. It will be an issue to ruin the conscience of someone close to you in the faith. Because again, verse 4 simply says in God's rules in the text, really quick, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. All that is simply saying, it's another analogy from Paul, saying that a master, it was the master's business to judge, to declare the status of a servant or a slave. And the Lord is our master, so how do we get to judge and take the Lord's place in declaring the status on somebody? That's all that verse is saying. God is ruling. God's the one who rules. God is the one who can make a believer stand or fall, depending on how they're walking with Christ. God rules. Grace rules. God rules. So we can lovingly, as we draw this to a close, teach. We should teach Christian liberty. We should have people grow in their Christian liberty in faith. That's why Paul's bringing this up. Paul doesn't want the whole church to be weak in the faith. Paul wants people to get the ladder up on more and more issues from weaker to stronger because what we're trying to do is not make Christianity just a faith of just rules and commands. It's not an outside-in religion. It's an inside-out relationship. Okay? You don't need rules when you're filled with the Spirit. If you're walking in the Spirit, you don't need rules. You inherently, instinctively know what to do how to glorify God, whether you eat or drink, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, due to the glory of God. Pause the example of this again. Galatians 4, just write it down, verses 9 to 11. I won't take the time to read it. You know what the dangers are. Key question, just ask yourself, is there anyone you're passing judgment on today because of a certain issue, certain point of view you have? If so, you want to deal with that. Avoid the extreme. Now listen, this is avoiding another extreme. You might be with someone, you might have a relationship in the church right now that they look like you, they talk like you, they like the same things that you do, but their doctrine stinks. They may not even be a believer. You're not sure, but I'm going to overlook that because they live the right way. Or the reverse could be true, and you don't want to fall for that extreme either. Their doctrine is solid, man. I'm talking to them. I sound like I'm talking to MacArthur or Piper. They can parrot the Westminster Confession of Faith by heart, the larger catechism. But the way they're living is causing you all kinds of consternation, all kinds of second thoughts. Could be a bad influence on you in some way. You got to take that into consideration. This takes discernment, you need wisdom you got to pray for it, and you need to study. But you need grace in this journey to satisfy your conscience. Don't compromise your conscience. Don't let somebody, some weaker brother, stronger brothers, this is for you because Paul's basically in this text taking the position of the stronger brother, which he was. He said in Colossians two sixteen and 17, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Amen? Remember, we don't have the authority to judge others. That's God. God's rules, verse 4. We don't have the purity of heart to judge others, meaning condemn them. And we don't have the knowledge. We don't know everything to condemn or judge someone, to look down on someone. We disagree with, with non-essential opinions or disputable, questionable issues. As someone said, major in the majors, minor in the minors. Very easy example. Years before I was just coming to Christ, I was working for the Partnership for Drug-Free America. I was at a conference in Washington, D.C., having dinner with some other people. It was at a beer brewery house, and at the time, I was a beer drinker, really enjoyed that. Everyone's ordering their beers, and this one woman in the corner wouldn't drink her beer, and I kept Why are you not drinking a beer? This is where we're eating. This is, I should have already had a clue. This is a dinner for drug-free, drug-prevention people, but I'm like, you know. So I give her a hard time, and I ask her time after time again, why isn't she drinking, until she finally said, well, if you must know in front of everyone, I'm a recovering alcoholic. There wasn't a big enough rock for me to crawl under. Stupid wasn't considering other people because it's my liberty, I'm free. Couldn't I have considered the conscience and everybody else at the table? Be wise, pray about these issues, study them well. But at the end, don't judge. Augustine, the old church father, said it well in essentials, unity, in non essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Which is an old word for love. Let's close in prayer. Lord, help us to not elevate our opinions and make others follow. Because you are the convictor of hearts. We're no one's Holy Spirit. May others learn of your love through me, through all of us in this room in Christ. May the greatest force on earth... Not be the compulsion of the law, but the compassion of love. May we be free in Christ, truly free, understanding what it means to be free. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room who does not feel that freedom, if anyone thinks that they can just be on the surface like a Pharisee, act well enough to know Jesus, to be good enough on the surface by not tasting, touching, or doing certain things, if they think that earns them salvation, Lord, please show them through someone, through the word, that those that opposed Jesus the most were the most superficially clean people in his time. But inside, they were, their hearts were like the bones of dead men. Whitewashed tombs. I pray, Lord, that You'll do the heart surgery that's necessary through the Holy Spirit on someone here today that may know Christ, and today might be the day, based on what they've heard and what the Spirit's doing, stirring in their hearts, that they would turn to you, turn away from an old lifestyle of sin and selfishness, and turn to you to follow you and trust in Jesus alone, by their faith alone, that Jesus on the cross paid and died for their sins, that sin payment that would otherwise condemn them to judgment to hell forever. Let that happen today, and for those that have praised the Lord, God, thank you for saving my brothers and sisters in this church family, in this room, and may you lead us all to maturity in Christ, so that we would properly enjoy our Christian liberty with our proper love responsibility. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. Christ Community Church is a God glorifying, Christ exalting, and Bible centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on our ministry, please visit our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's ChristcomChurchCom.org.